This is the Lattice Training Podcast, where we bring you the best in climbing performance and training from the world's elite athletes, thought leaders, and coaches. Hello to everyone who has tuned into the Lattice Training Podcast today. We have a very, very special episode indeed. In fact, this hasn't happened for maybe two to three years and may not happen again for two to three years. <laughs> it's me and Ollie Tor sat down in a dark, cold, uncomfortable room recording a podcast together. It's like eight years ago, all over again, or five years ago. Has anything changed in those eight years? I'm greyer, you're <laughs> older, and we're both more tired. <laughs> That sets such a positive tone for everything. Yeah, yeah, but we're wiser. I think that's the thing. Yeah. And we work with more V17 boulders now, so... This is very true. That has changed. But it is currently 6pm on a Thursday afternoon, and you're about to go on a climbing trip, and we're here recording a podcast last minute. And I'm ill as well, so if I sound nasal, I do apologise for that. So nothing's actually changed, is it? Nope. Same old, same old. Same old, same old. But the good thing is... In these intervening years, I feel like me and you have picked up quite a lot of experience, especially with training right at the top end, which is kind of the real topic and subject that I wanted to go through with you today, because both you and I have worked with some of the world's best climbers, whether they're boulders, sport climbers or indoor competition climbers over the kind of period that we've worked together. And I thought it'd be cool to go through really what we've learned from those experiences with people like Aidan Roberts and Will Bosey and Toby Roberts and pull out some of the kind of common threads to how it works to train for the Olympics, how it works to break into your limit of your human performance potential and see what everyone thinks and takes away from that. Yeah, it's really interesting that, isn't it? I sometimes forget when you're in it that who we've worked with and for how long, because, for example, you've worked with will for over a decade i've worked with toby since he was 13 and aiden for five or six years but then also we've worked with tommy caldwell alex honnold people like that in the meantime um and you kind of forget with time goes you kind of get used to these people and you get used to all the training they're doing but actually kind of reflecting on it and and sharing those lessons is quite important so uh yeah we could have a bit of a dive in since we've not done it in ages yeah, I feel like we're going to be totally unpracticed at this with this type of discussion with you because I do this podcast on a somewhat regular basis and talking to people, but me and you don't sit down so much doing this now. No, and the last podcast I did was, uh, I spoke absolutely terribly. So uh, apologies to Stephen Dimmitt on the Nugget podcast. He had to re-record with me. So uh, let's try and do better than last time. Did you do two takes on the Nugget podcast? I, I did a caveat because I was uh, I pretty much went down as trainer thought regarding critical force and the training using elite athletes, but I was in mid training season uh, with Toby Roberts and Aiden Roberts, um, not related. And I was so in this elite mindset that the information I shared when I'd finished the podcast, I realized, Oh, is that actually attainable for everyone else at home? Are they going to take the lessons from that and apply them directly to themselves, which is normal but without the context and without the training background. So afterwards I asked uh, Stephen and he very kindly said yes to me, adding a caveat for um, the takeaways that you can do for someone who's not climbing at the top level, but 
um, the applicability of the lessons I was discussing. For example, in the podcast, I mentioned that I don't think arcing is particularly useful, and I think we'll come on to this later, but that is for a very niche group of athletes. But for everyone else, I think it is very useful and it has its place in training. And I think that was the bit that I forgot to explicitly say. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a hard one when you when you when you're living in it and you're living in that world, uh, you do sometimes forget uh, what's happening everywhere else. I mean, that actually brings me to a really useful sort of preface to what we're going to talk about here because I've got a number of different topics that I kind of want to break down that whole Olympic topic versus V17 Boulder and kind of an elite outdoor performer and. I suppose the first headline thing that I want to cover is when we take lessons or performance habits or methodology right from the top end, how do you think we need to tackle those things in relation to our weekend warrior or someone that has been training or climbing perhaps only five years? Are there important things to consider when we do that, for example, when you said just taking something totally out of context and going art training is pointless, or maybe we're talking about Tommy Caldwell and someone who climbs every day at the weekend goes, I just heard that Tommy Caldwell doesn't art, do art training. I'm not doing it. So yeah. what are those things that you feel like you always want to pass on? I think um, probably the main things are the lessons that you take from the elite. You need to adjust intensity and you need to adjust adjust um mental focus or the nuance focus so to quantify uh, to quantify or clarify that a little bit more um you can do a lot of the same training as an elite athlete and you can do a lot of the same training as a pro athlete regardless of um the type of climbing they do but the amount of volume you do might be slightly different but the intensity will definitely be different and the intensity volume will definitely be different. So, for example, it's not just about changing your grade of your training session com- uh, the same as the max grade. So if Aidan Roberts can climb V17 and he might do some of his mileage sessions at V10, you can't necessarily do the same amount of mileage sessions if you're a V10 climber doing it at V7 because it's still a really high volume at high intensity for you but he's got a far bigger um ability to operate at that high volume high intensity so you could do the same volume but it needs to be lower intensity comparatively you could do the same intensity but the volume needs to be changed but that's usually a harder way around so always drop the intensity a little bit lower than what you're hearing the pro athlete is doing Mm. same with that arcing and then the other thing is like we're always pushing kind of like the mental elements of training focus on your technical movement during this training session or try focusing on the nuance of this movement in this training session. But let's be honest, if you're Tuesday evening, you've had a long day in the office, you're absolutely knackered. You need to go in and you want to try and get loads of high intensity climbing done. It's really hard to think about all those nuances and an elite athlete, I would be very disappointed if if they didn't do that and they weren't focused on what holds are they using? What style of movement are they really thinking about their movement patterns or, you know, trying to actually make the most of that training? But for the weekend warrior or someone who's had a long day at work, just get in there and get the intensity, get the motivation in and focus on actually getting the training done. And if you've got the extra mental space, add those things on. But don't think that you're a failure if you don't do that. 
So I guess there's two things that stand out to me. I don't know if you've seen the same. Yeah. I suppose when, and it's always a really interesting topic because you, you have in almost all areas of life, people look at the top end for their habits because they go, well, if Elon Musk did this to get to this position in business, if this athlete did this to be a world record holder in the hundred meters, therefore we play out those same rules and those same patterns of the journey to be able to get to that point. But I think the bit that I always want to leave people with is that there is an underlying physiological, psychological personality trait makeup that go into a lot of these right at the edge Mm. performers. And you've got to be careful that you don't apply the exact same filter because ultimately you may just have a different baseline to some of these other people and you need to at least respect and understand that that exists so that one you don't push your body to so far that it does break because some bodies are more breakable in air quotes than others or that they just don't have the same work capacity some people have to deal with maybe more setbacks because they're not able to get there as fast or it takes longer a whole number of different factors and i think it's important to make sure there's a degree of realism that you may not have the same ceiling potential as others because of just the nat- the nature that you've been de- you know delivered in life yeah and i think probably one of the ceiling components which does stand out with the elite is the obsessiveness and i think like you said it's a lot of the athletes i know are quite obsessive and they can get really down in the detail and they're really focused in and if you just not got that naturally, it won't be sustained if you do try and force it. So you can't, I think people can get to an elite level in many different ways, many different mindsets. But the obsessive characteristic is relatively common in the elite. If you don't have that, you might just need to accept that that's something that isn't going to come naturally or means that you're going to be a little bit withheld from getting to that level. Mm. And I think the other thing you said that stood out to me um, which really reminds me of this, like you talked about Elon Musk and all these, like I listen to so many things about CEOs and business owners and elite athletes. And there's a whole thing of all the tactics, all the top five features, um, all of that element of how they're living now is total bollocks in terms of how they got there. It's like what got them there isn't what's, or what got us here isn't going to get us there kind of approach. So they might be living this really relaxed lifestyle where they have a morning routine and they go to bed at this time and they have kombucha at this time and (laughs) all that kind of like stuff. But realistically people that are like dug deep um, have usually had relatively unhealthy obsessive habits that got them to an elite level. Um, I was reading something the other day about the amount of uh, New York bestseller authors did a lot of their work between 11 PM and 4 AM And there's a really, really high percentage of when those books were written in that time slot, because usually there's less social pressure, there's less stuff going on in the rest of life, less distraction. And yet you don't have to see that anywhere in terms of advice of going, what we're going to do is if you need to push it, you need to go start working at 11 p.m. Because that's not a healthy thing to push. Yet the habits that those habits are the things that make people elite. Mm. So a lot of these people uh, I know so many pro athletes that like to thrash and they like to push themselves really hard in training too hard. They break themselves a lot. Us as coaches, we're not going to push that. Um, 
but we're trying to find a balance between those two things of what did the elites actually do and what's healthy to push and we need to find kind of like the nice way of doing those things but sometimes unhealthy habits do make the elite so we kind of need to accept that a little bit as well and if you're not willing to do that and commit all of your life to something maybe you won't be elite in the same way mm, yeah that, that's really interesting i mean that, that actually kind of brings me onto our first kind of proper topic top, subject title uh, straight away is that i suppose the refinement of the elite in their build-up journey so they're getting into that elite phase and they're getting into the you know the top 0.1 percent of the performers in the sport versus what do you do right in or in that period when they are right at the top so the question in a simplest way is when do we or, or rather what do we do with the weaknesses or the perceived weaknesses of athletes when they're right at their ceiling potential so someone's training to perform for the olympics someone's wanting to do their first v17 climb their first 90 plus 9c for example when do we start going well, we're not going to spend all our time just like we do with a lot of our clients effectively focusing more on their weaknesses and maybe doing something else um i think it's i think it's a balance depending on what the athlete wants to do and when they want to do it um because we definitely would address weaknesses in a base training phase but i think it comes down to a discussion a lot of these athletes i think do end up performing in the areas they're strongest in then they always dip out of that area to try and perform in stuff they're not good in or slightly different but then they'll always come back to what they're strong at because they enjoy it more because they've got that level of um they feel like they're performing well they get that sort of nice feeling of being having excellence um so for me there's always a balance of um when is it a time sink like when are we spending too much time on um training which is going to cost mental energy physical energy and it's not going to have any reward to that beyond making sure it's not too unbalanced can you give me an example of that that kind of stuff so a good example would be um i think johnny kidd who works here is a, a brilliant coach who works at lattice uh he's just climbed recent 8c um font 8c yeah so really really high performer he is really really stiff he's not flexible at all and it's a bit of a I think it's almost a running joke in the in the office that he's uh he's not very flexible but very rightly so he always says I'm climbing in a horizontal roof the positions where my legs need to be for this project which has taken up a lot of his time do not require the mobility and if I was to say oh we're going to smash your mobility all the time it's something you really need to work on then that is going to take away mental energy from his board sessions, from his finger strength sessions. I don't care what you say, focus training takes away mental energy and physical energy. And that to me would not benefit his climbing, despite it being a weakness and he's addressing a weakness. Mm. When he comes, to, he's finished his project now, I think he should work on it because he's not got another specific project that doesn't require flexibility. So it would be silly not to address that whilst he's not specifically training for something because it could be needed in the next project. So that's where most climbers that are less elite or aren't performing at a high level need to do more because they're changing projects or they're changing climbing styles more frequently 
than the best climbers are. Um, that is slightly different though for competition athletes. I don't agree with that for competition. The competition athletes, you can't really have weaknesses and you do need to lead into your strengths, but you need to lead into specific or lean into specific movement strengths and run with that. But you can't have weaknesses, like glaring weaknesses. Again, an example is um, Toby Roberts. He's great at fighting up a wall, power endurance. He has great endurance when he's feeling fit. So we lean into that in his training and it means he can fight his way through boulders and stuff. But it doesn't mean that we stop doing any power training. Like I try and increase his pace. I try and increase the power because he's going to be on roots and he's going to be on boulders that he can't get away with fighting. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately he has to train the weaknesses way more. Um, the other side of this is I don't train weaknesses as much if it reduces strength. Again, an example is I work a lot with Aiden on powerful styles of climbing. I do think that is the future of his climbing. But based on him going to try and Alphane right and Alphane and a lot of his other climbs, he's a very strong static climber. We spend all our time doing powerful climbing. He doesn't have time under tension in different positions to develop static strength that he needs to perform in his style of climbing. So what he'll end up doing is he'll go out as an average powerful climber and he'll be a reduced static climber and therefore have a portrait. If he can go out as the best static climber he can be with a bit more power, that's the ideal scenario. So it's a bit of a balancing act. I know, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? I always feel like as a, a coach with these types of individuals, it's like this tweaking things like a, a sort of like a, a mad professor that you know you've got these quite delicate things in balance and you know that for right at the top end, as soon as you get it wrong, they really quickly feel it and the athlete will feed it back quite quickly that they're not doing something very well or something. And they're somewhat, I suppose in a way, right at the limit, a, a delicate athlete in the sense that they have a psychological attachment to that very, very last sort of margin of performance. And like I definitely had the same issue in some ways with Will when we were training sort of the, the Cyclops of the last Olympics. And one of the elements of his climbing that has been weaker within his sort of ability in terms of technical stuff is that dynamic kind of parkour coordination style climbing. And at the same time as running up to that Olympic qualification period, psychologically, there was so much on the line. It was really pressured, a lot of funding choices on it. It was really marginal whether he would even qualify for the Olympics, loads of stuff going on. And ultimately, it wasn't the right decision to keep pushing that weakness element of the coordination style too far during that run-up because it was too much once you stacked it on top of all these other things. So you have to actually back off that weakness training because if you stack too many of the things on top and he loses that psychological element, he'll never perform at his best anyway. So yeah, it's definitely, it's knowing the athlete, isn't it? And everyone has their different uh, pushback points where you can say, Unfortunately, you have to get on with this and you have to do this weakness. If you don't do it, that's absolutely fine. But you're holding the accountability for you're the one who's got it wrong. Mm. Um, And I've had wording like that with not just elite athletes, but any athlete. Um, I think me and Tommy had the same conversation is in I'm happy to not do this, but you are acknowledging that you're compromising your training for this reason. And that is just an agreement. And I think when people have that agreement then either way it's totally fine 
um but it becomes a bit more of a conscious decision rather than do you know what? I, I just can't do my weakness anymore because I need to have this psychological element um I'm happy to take the risk or oh you why didn't you get me to do more of this um more of my weakness more of my powerful climbing and you're like well it's because you won't I didn't think you were going to be right place but just making it a conscious decision is the way to go forward with those things mm. so if you want to work your weaknesses and this is the same for everyone um then really make sure it doesn't take away from your strengths but if you don't want to work your weaknesses then have a real honest conversation going if I am too stiff to do these movements or not my fingers aren't strong enough then you've accepted that at the beginning of the training yeah and actually talking as you were just saying uh, that stuff there it reminded me of the chat that we had just after you'd assessed Alex Honnold and I think it'd been in the foundry or something like that uh Ollie Groundsall did yeah that was Ollie Groundsall that did it and his fingers were definitely on the lower side of all the performance markers that we would expect typically for someone at that grade and especially so moving forward to like his project goal of 9a was there ever a point that you stopped working that weakness of finger strength all the way through his training program because i don't think i've ever asked you this question or did you actually because it was so obvious you go after it all the time um i never i never stopped it at right. all but I also didn't need to because that's all Alex wanted <laughs> um it was like a real honest discussion he wanted stronger fingers he's he does train the rest of his body he's got great core strength he is strong and um, he does develop strength in many ways and he's extremely fit but he knows his fingers are weaker than the rest of his climbing ability um and that unfortunately just comes from the amount of volume he does um so I never had to worry about that he had buy-in I had buy-in um, it was a priority over everything else. Mm. Okay, next question. What or how do you feel that your your experiences, or what has your experience led you to conclude in terms of the difference of training preparation for an elite climber who is aiming for the Olympics versus something outside on v17 kind of standard on rock are there key differences because i would suspect everyone who's listening or maybe even watching um will think oh it's just all the same it's all freaking hard they i bet you they train the same way especially because they see people jump between the disciplines and also do really well yeah it's um i would say it's more pressure for the comp athlete but I wouldn't say it's necessarily psychologically easier. It's a weird thing to say that. Um, but in terms of training, um, yes, there's three main things in terms of the Olympics, which you don't necessarily get in terms of outdoor climbing, whether you're training someone for 9B plus, roots, 9A boulder, whatever. Um, I think the new format, it's all about volume and it's about having um, effectively durability of performance and by durability of performance i mean um what maximum power output power endurance output can you do at the start of a session and at the end of the session the start of the week at the end of the week um the best athletes in the world and this a lot of this language comes from cycling tade bogaccia uh tour de france cyclist tour de france winner uh vinegard both the same their power output 
after 10 kilometers over a short sprint or short power period of several minutes is the same after 10 kilometers as it is after 150 kilometers of steady state riding. So they can be up near their aerobic threshold for 150 kilometers and still produce exactly the same power output because the durability is so good. And that's based on all their energy systems training. So why does that relate to the new format of Olympics is say next year, we've got the OQS, which is the Olympic qualifying series. It's three events over three months, one week event, three weeks off, one week event, three weeks off, one week event. And you've got qualifiers, semis and finals of Boulder and Lead. And they're pretty stacked close together. So you've got athletes that need to be able to perform on boulders, back to back to back, perform on routes, perform on boulders, perform routes, perform on boulders, routes. And if you think about that, like even this World Cup season, um, I think athletes need to strategize in terms of what World Cups they go to. And the younger ones, as you saw, definitely went to everything. And I think they slightly paid the price for it. But um, the OQS is mandatory and you have to perform at the three events if you want to go to the Olympics, you haven't qualified already. So that durability to keep performing and keep having a high power output on the final route on the final day is really critical. And I don't think enough climbers are doing that at the moment, particularly comp climbers and particularly boulders. And that's why they're struggling with the combined format. The second element is the broad movement range. So you can't be, you can be a specialist in certain ways, like I said before, in terms of whether you're static, whether you're really fast and powerful, uh, whether you ability to hang on, but you can't be a movement specialist anymore. Um, and if you've got a movement specialist, all it takes is for the wrong boulder set to arrive and you score next to nothing. And then that's your combination score done. Um, really good example, recent World Cup in Bern, uh, Mikel on the French team, fantastic win. Uh, he's 33 years old, twice the age of Serato, who came third, uh, sorry, fourth, um, and absolutely brilliant. But not to take any away, anything away from him, but those movement patterns for him were absolutely ideal in that winning in that series and in that competition. The rest of the World Cups, he wasn't exactly podiuming all the time. He didn't do that well. And that just happened to be really good. So he's kind of won out on that. Mm if he had that level of ability on all movement patterns, he should be performing every week and weekend, every weekend, week in, week out. Um, so broad movement range is critical. And then lastly is what you don't get outside is you can strategize where you are planning on getting to and the type of training you do to get to on these climbs. So a really good example is if you went through a load of athletes in the World Cups, I can generally tell you what their wall length is like or what their training's like based on where they fall off on the routes. So the first third is usually technical. It's there to scare the athletes, make them over grip. And they actually break this up into colours now, which is quite defined. I think it's always quite funny that it's, it's so obvious, but it's great. So the first bit, it's all about like getting people a bit more worried, a bit more scared. And the confident ones, the more experienced ones are always a little more relaxed there. Um, the middle third is very bouldery. It's becoming way more traverse based. It's bigger holes, macros using the full body. And then the top half is fighting. The athletes that are always seeming to be maybe getting finals, just getting in semis, all this could be my time to perform, but they never seem to quite push. They don't train for that fight at the end. 
they're only training for the three quarters mark or two thirds. That means they're usually on shorter walls or they're not short. They're not training how to fight hard enough all the time in their training. That's one thing that Jakob Schubert, Toby, I don't think I've actually seen Serato after fight yet, but Serato, they can fight on a head wall. And I don't think many of the athletes know how to do that. And they don't train for that. They train to climb on harder moves. And when they're off, they're off almost. But the ones who can like dip their shoulders into the wall, have a quick shake and keep fighting, they're the ones that get through that top head wall. Um, so, but you could strategize if you're a really good boulderer, you could race up to the three quarters mark. You probably do all right overall if you do really well in the boulder. It's risky, but that is another element is like what you're actually training for on these lead routes. Outside, you're training to get to the top every time, and everything has to be about that. But in comps, you're training to get points. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does it. And I think it's it's really interesting that the the output of what you need to do to perform now in that difference of Olympic format, especially with this combined format, and especially so the last Olympic cycle that had speed, lead, and boulder going into it, produces a really different demand on the preparation that goes into that because they are very different. Even though on the surface you go well, these are both elite level performances. These are the best climbers in the world. And they're diverging more and more, I think, now, because especially as people build careers out of it and people have longer times actually training multiple years for each of those outcomes, that itself is defining a different set of athletes. And naturally, because on competition stuff, the root setters have to create challenge for the type of athlete that they're seeing, that athlete is evolving over time. It's going to diverge even more because the rock is fixed and those problems out there always exist in that way. But the route setting will always change according to styles and demands and how the sport evolves. And I think that's a really interesting element to, to how we see it. Yeah, it's, it'll be it'll be interesting how I think one thing to consider is that they are both good at both scenarios, apart from the mental side, in my opinion. Mm. Um I do think we can see this divergence, particularly on the more dynamic side of climbing. I think the dynamic level which you get outside isn't quite the same, but the Japanese climbers have proved that wrong. They go to Rocklands, they're jumping between everything. Tomorrow's grey outside. But like a good example is um, Toby goes outside and he's trying to climb 9B+. And Jakob just climbing, trying to climb 9C. He's got that ability to go outside and climb hard. I mean, Jakob's boulder list is ridiculous outside mm. in his performance. But vice versa, Aiden this winter um, totally burnt off Toby in winter training on comp blocks. And Aiden thinks he's got better at comp climbing since he's been out, outdoors and focused because he's just got a better climber. And we're talking super dynamic, hard movements. But the ability for Toby and Jakob might be they might just not be as into doing the really long projects and Aiden definitely isn't into that comp pressure anymore. So I think that it's the personality crowd, you know, what you enjoy, the mental pressure side that stands out to me more. I actually don't think the physical capabilities of the athlete is that different. Um, and it's not as different as we maybe think it can be mm -hmm. having worked with people mixing both up. Um, I know James Pearson, uh, an athlete I work with and a good friend of mine he's been doing some fun comps recently and 
he's clearly a great boulderer outside and he's done well in some of these comps, but then some of them he hasn't. And that's just because he's out of practice at comps. He's never really done them, to be honest. So it's just a bit of fun for him. But like his physical capability, I'm sure would transfer extremely well if that's what he just did a little bit more of. Um, so I think actually, if you're a good climber, you're a good climber. But what you enjoy and perform at is divergent. Yeah, yeah. I do, I do still feel like I want to still argue the, with you a little bit and in terms of, I don't know whether, I feel like for me personally anyway, how I kind of assess those top athletes that do best in comp climbing versus those that will perform on the stuff outdoors. And it, and it goes back to that first point you talked about, the kind of the overall work capacity across a day or across a week. I do think there's a difference between your outdoor highest level climber versus the comp one in terms of overall work capacity. And I think if you, for example, if you were to put Will and Toby together head to head in a season, you gave them the same preparation in terms of time on plastic, I think, and Will, don't kill me too much for saying this, I think Toby would be in a better position compared to Will now because his work capacity, in my view, is a lot better. And I think that's one of the things quite different about I, yeah, I'm not sure. I uh, <laughs> We did a training session recently and Will absolutely blew the training goals out the winter from me and the comp lot, obviously from me, but from the comp lot and Aiden and stuff. It was so impressive to watch, like after a big session. I wonder whether the, I, I wonder whether the reason why the capacity is lower for someone like an elite athlete like Will, who has got a big base, I do think if they've not got a big base, it's different. Mm. Uh, like you do get boulder, outdoor boulders that just don't have a good capacity and base. I think that is a different scenario. But Will, who was a comp athlete, has a good base behind him. Is the fatigue, is the lack of capacity that you might perceive, is that because each comp isn't quite as enjoyable is a bit more stressful. The travel maybe he just doesn't enjoy as much. He doesn't lean into that. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree with it completely because I know there's a lot of boulders out there that I think can barely last like a like a, you know a proper training season. Um, who are really good and they just got to the best by those top end measures and being specific. But I do think an equivalent world elite world elite. I bet their capacities are pretty good. Seb Bowen, for example, I bet he's got a massive work capacity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah Gigantic, yeah. won't it? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely massive. So, yeah, I wonder whether he, he would actually do pretty well in the comp. It's just that he wouldn't enjoy it, and therefore it would fatigue him way quicker. Yeah. and then that mental aspect makes that difference again, and it really plays out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you talk about some margins. Um, what do you think are the exercises that are being used or, or going on or you're utilizing with your elite level athletes whether it's you know your, your v17 boulder like aiden or uh, olympic qualification athletes that are most effective at the moment with us particular training methodology exercises or maybe even tools or the things that you feel like at the moment are really making a difference um I can think of a few 
things which stand out, which are, I'm definitely, you know, picking stuff that is, is quite nice to, to think of different things, but actually, you know, I'll definitely caveat this with the basic work is, is the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say that these things are the game changers. Um, Everyone loves a game changer though, Holly. Yeah, I know, I know. They this is what I'm They're so, waiting right now going, he's going to tell me the, secret. the answer. <laughs> So it's the one thing that I do with pretty much all my athletes now, and I only work, I'm lucky to only work with elite athletes at the moment, is um, I smash their shoulders all the time, particularly in base phase, and I'm talking like a lot, a lot of smashing the shoulders. And when you say smash, this is like smashing a British yeah, training coach. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So I'm talking volume, I'm talking volume intensity. And like, so easy way to envision it is, Okay, which way does your shoulder work? So your shoulder is involved in pushing your hand forward. Well, I'm going to say the movement of the hand, and then you can imagine what the shoulder is doing in reaction to this. So hand going forward, hand going downwards, the hand going up towards the ceiling, the hand going backwards, so from in front to your shoulder, and then going outwards and rotating. So what does that mean? Good exercise, good workout, chest press, tricep dips, low row, pull-ups, shoulder rotations, lateral raise. All of those things are just hitting every side of the shoulder. So any problem, any sort of climbing movement that comes up, the shoulder's worked in that range. You can do a quite high volume of it. You want to be working the aerobic muscles in those shoulders so they can recover quickly. Um, You can work the strength in those ranges, uh, particularly the rotator cuff standard. Everyone knows this. Climbers are Terminal internal rotators, let's get external rotators. But the amount that I do is quite a lot with all my athletes. Um, and I try and do that throughout the base season. You can do two of those sessions a week, try and get as much in as possible. And it's really easy just to add in as a separate conditioning session. It doesn't usually take away from climbing if you do it afterwards. Um, and it doesn't add a huge amount of fatigue to following days. <coughs> so that'd be one thing. Another thing would be the active mobility on the lower legs. Um, once again, everything from like pulling in with your toes, like how strong are your feet on your toes, uh, being able to pull in with your hamstrings and compress, really easy to overlook. It does take a bit more effort to have buy-in, but the bigger the range, the bigger the strength in that range, the better you're going to be. And I think that's definitely applicable. Um and then I guess one thing is getting used to weird holds now, and that's more comp athletes. Uh, so comp athletes is, um, I used to climbing on no text holds. Like you saw in the recent World Cups, like people have to wet their hands. We're not at that point yet, but we spend a lot of time on different holds and a huge amount of time on slabs, like just padding around on slabs, balancing between holds, getting used to what you can get away with standing on. And that's a massive thing to do. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I feel like uh, I would say that I wholeheartedly agree with those answers and they very much resonate with my own thoughts of stuff that makes a bit more difference or, 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 or is actually transferring across into performance when you're talking about the elite end. But I, I also want to always caveat that stuff with actually still when it comes down to it and this transfers all the way down to your mid-level climber and your lower level climber as well is that even after you know 
10 years of me and you trying to work right at this elite end all the way from our you know Sheffield Raven tour crimping specialists through to people trying to qualify for the Olympics there still are really no secret hacks or Mm. things that we've gone oh my goodness that has totally changed the game it's just little tweaks and moderations that you then incorporate into your training practice and how you work with athletes but the bit that I think when you talk about that specifically really does make the difference and you see this with you know myself and you and I think some of the most other really experienced trainers around the world is that we're now the function of decades plus experience of incorporating all these new training methods that have come across from sports science and we've kind of integrated a certain amount of practice in them with multiple people and we understand what the outputs are so I think there's a really interesting thing going on in coaching now where it's no longer kind of a bit more guesswork and a bit more uninformed because the high end of sport climbing or bouldering is so new in terms of coaching and training it's actually reasonably well established now so we've got a decent depth of history of using those things and we're like a hive mind of all of us understanding how all this stuff works and I think that's interesting yeah and I think we we're probably coming full circle back to some of the old methodologies Mm. and understanding why they actually worked and I do think there's still a bit of a magpie effect like even in the office here I think there's a debate on you know stuff like arcing there's a debate on um intent like endurance for example but I think the thing that we've probably got on our side is um all of the particular exercises or genre of exercise or style of movement or whatever they all have their own caveats such as skin being worn out time on the rock motivation have you got the right facilities I think if you've not coached people in that scenario with that time availability you can't add those caveats immediately mm. and sometimes it does restrict your open-mindedness and you have to pull back from that but um I think yeah the the sports science even that's coming out now particularly like constantly being updated on on stuff that's new and what's the best practice you've got so much knowledge or baggage almost of what the athletes will and won't do and how it actually they all respond to those things um yeah it does mean that you can make decisions quicker brilliant example um steve redgrave um book supporting a champion i think he said he said to one of the sports scientists who asked him what we want or what what do you think helps you perform and he said at this olympics we did loads of mileage and we just focused on mileage low intensity and we won at this Olympics, they changed everything. We did loads of hit training, loads of interval stuff, and we won. This one, we did loads of mileage, and then we did high-intensity polarized, and then we came together and we won. He's like, at the end of the day, we're grafting, and we're just doing the work, and we'll win. And I thought that was a really good idea, is they know what they are willing to do, and there's all these different methods of doing it, but fundamentally, they were rowing a boat a lot. They're doing a lot of technique stuff, and they were doing a lot of high-intensity volume. Mm. Um and I think that's what we've got to come back to. What's the things that you're going to be able to do consistently and what makes the biggest difference? So what things do you think don't work? They're yeah. overrated. Yeah, like some of that overrated um, shit, gimmicky stuff. So I would say... Um, BFR. BFR, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that was a nice little phase. It's quite... A, 
funny because we obviously get asked by loads of clients don't worry about it and, I mean, we've got some BRR bands in the office yeah yeah we, we very kindly we're giving them um let's not say there's when there's not no case for them yeah, i do yeah. think for injury there's still a good case um i don't think we're educated enough in using them to be like definitively these are not good enough to work but in my experience i don't see the point when you have got a healthy athlete that can train they don't need another stimulus they should be motivated by the training you're giving them without having to give them a gimmicky toy mm-hmm. um so yeah it's definitely that's a good example of something that came into fashion and the reason why no one's using it at the wall is because there's a limited use for it. This podcast is not sponsored by any BFR company. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, once again, I, there is probably a good case study for it. I know a lot of people that have been injured using it. I've used them myself. I have tried it out, but um, yeah, for us personally, day-to-day practice, coaching practice, it's not something we use. Um I think overrated climbing stuff, I think it comes down to what level you're at. And I do think it makes a difference. Like I said, you can take lessons from the top and go down. There is a lot of simple stuff that goes across the spectrum. Uh, but say like I made a few notes on, on, I think we were talking about overrated stuff before. Uh, so beginners, I think fingerboarding. Um, fingerboarding is good to learn grip positions and uh, I think it's good to build some robustness, but in terms of finger strength and like improving your climbing, I think there's too much emphasis on it. I'm not saying it's not important. There's too much emphasis. If you're a beginner and we're talking what to sort of V4, V5, just get climbing, get on the wall, get your movement good. Your fingers will get stronger climbing. I think um, more of an intermediate climber or like passionate amateur is project bouldering. Um not enough too much time working at your max intensity and just not doing enough volume i think like you just don't pick up the movement skills you don't get the strength base you just focus on this top end your injury rate is going to be higher because you're always trying to perform hard and see it time and time again like why have you got a tweak it's because you're always trying too hard Mm -hmm. so those climbers probably more looking at around v6 to v11 you know, too much time trying to do top end because that's what you're seeing on films and, and training. Like a lot of the best do a lot of volume in that range. So get the volume in as well. You can still boulder, still go on the board, but just do reps of boulders. Um, and that's far more productive. And like, look at it kind of like a hypertrophy anaerobic capacity style training where you get a lot of volume in and you might find yourself getting stronger anyway. So I'd definitely give that a go. Um, and then elite, I think, controversial topic here is too much low intensity stuff um i think it i don't actually think many elite athletes do this um other than those that are looking in the uk alex barrows talking to you who uh, want to perform on really long stuff and they're in the uk most of the year i do think arcing's good but realistically it costs a lot of skin costs a lot of time you're going to get it in in your warm-up anyway and if you're really an elite athlete, you should be doing a lot of intensity and you should be able to cope with a lot of intensity in the week. So I think too much arcing, too much focus on arcing, arcing is overrated. Um, but that's a very controversial topic. And I might come back in five years time and be like, oh, arcing is the best thing ever. But um, I'm currently debating with Cam, one of the coaches here on this and good friend of mine, Joel, that I went to university with who is, um a doctorate in sports science he teaches at derby university 
I know he he's was an elite cyclist and we're discussing this a lot. Mm. Um, but from my experience, the amount of climbing you can do at high intensity, whether that's still on a slab or vert climbing, a lot of movement-based stuff, particularly for comp athletes, um, it doesn't necessarily need to be easy, but it could be a really long session. Again, the Japanese boulder for eight-hour sessions, um, they're not doing low-intensity bouldering, but on and off the wall, it ends up being like almost an arcing stimulus anyway, rather than traversing around on jugs for 40 minutes at a time. So I think that's a deb- uh, controversial one, but I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, I, mean, I love traversing around on jugs for ages all day. I know, like- but we're talking about the elite here, so. Oh, okay, you got me. <laughs> I would say the one thing that I feel like is really overrated and people don't always grasp this especially in the uncoached or the intermediate level range is untested or uncritiqued methodology in anything yeah like that's the for me is the overrated thing so people hear something from ollie ollie's on a podcast says whatever it is is great and then they immediately go into using that and adopting that into all their training without critiquing how is this actually affecting my performance how am i responding to this stimulus they just go in blind blindly that for me is the major kind of mistake or overrated thing that you hear about something from someone even if it's got really good sound rationale for it but then don't critically look at it and then track it over time and then you know what it's like we, we've talked to people who've done something for seasons in a row without actually really questioning whether the thing works because they just heard the scene in Sheffield everyone's doing this or yeah Patchy's doing it or Alex Barrows is doing it you know it's the um I think they call it the expectations effect which is plays a massive role we've seen this both ways is you know if someone it's like a diet system or any kind of a belief system religion even it's all about how much do you believe in this scenario the more belief the more effort focus you can have a huge effect on um the outcome of doing that so people buy into stuff and they follow protocols and if you pretty much change any physical stimulus you're going to get better for the first four weeks it's all about neurological changes and it's got to be a pretty bad protocol if you don't improve in the first four weeks. Mm. Um, usually mean in a, tr- a reduction in training load. But if you change that, if you're still making progress after a certain amount of time, a lot of that can come down to that expectation effect. There's a fantastic book actually called, you know, named expectation effect. You can see in medical research, people can be told that they're using a placebo and they know they've got a placebo and it still has a placebo effect. So if someone sees a meals, two hangs a day, uh, two fingerboard sessions a day, it has got some sound evidence and I can understand the principles of how it could work. But if you really go into those sessions and you focus on that half crimp position, you focus on what you're doing, you're really dedicated to it, that expectation of getting stronger will play a huge role in how your physiology reacts to that. Um, vice versa, we see it the opposite way where we provide training plans that are not gimmicky they are that's you've got a coach that's supporting you they've created a plan 
it might look a little bit boring compared to what you're expecting compared to some online YouTube scenario. Yet, if the athlete is like, oh, this isn't right for me, this isn't enough for me, you get a nocebo effect. And I've seen this with elite athletes that worked with us, and it's like heartbreaking to actually go through. And it's purely down to their psychology going into it. Um, because then when you question them afterwards about what they're doing or what they've done prior, the stimulus might actually be very similar. But because they've got a new belief or a new system around it, that's why it works. Um, so, yeah, I do think, totally agree that it's overrated when people jump on these things. But I think the reason they work is because people want to believe in something. They want an identity in their training. So whatever you align yourself to, it's going to have a good effect to it for a little while. And the critical point is to take a step back and understand, is it making a difference compared to what I did before, irregardless of that belief system and structure? Because if you go and do BFR for you know three months, but you're dedicated to a fingerboard session with BFR on every three days, were you doing three days of dedicated fingerboarding without the BFR beforehand to compare? That's the, that's the critical analysis that you need to take. Mm. Um, but if you believe in it, that's the other thing. If you make improvements, go for it. Um, but it would be nice that, yeah, like you say, people had a bit more of a critical view on it. Yeah. Not to be yeah. cynical. <laughs> <laughs> Me and you, cynical. Yeah, I know. Never. I know. Been it too long. How do you manage the whole injury equation and trying to come back stronger for that when you work with really elite level athletes? Because I know from my perspective it's an absolute nightmare this whole scenario when you're trying to train someone to qualify for the olympics or they've got a really important trip booked up in two months time and you know that there's video production going into it there's reasonable financial backing actually making sure the trip is happening it's all being staggered and fitted into the whole season and there's a lot of pressure on the line and then you've got the setback have you dealt with that um, I think the sort of standard stuff you can do with anyone is like what focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. So core flexibility, it's fine not to do it whilst you're injured, but you are accepting that you're being lazy. Like you can do those things if you've got a finger injury, elbow tendonitis, whatever. Um, so I think it's working out what you're willing to do. Um, but the main thing is, particularly when you like in terms of elite athletes, is I think being prescriptive and very harsh and accountable. And once again, making an agreement beforehand makes the biggest difference because in my experience, all elite athletes, including not including myself as an elite athlete, but including myself as a climber, will always push the injury beyond where it should be. I know better than that and I still do it. Um, but you have to have the acknowledgement that you're taking the risk. You're going to push yourself back. And when I'm working with an athlete and coaching them, the worst thing I think you can do is go, well, I know you're going to do this anyway, so we'll try and mitigate around this. And I know certain physios that do the same sort of thing, which I really don't think is the right approach. Like people are going to us as experts to give them a definitive answer on what they should and shouldn't do. And if they go against that, they're making a decision to go against the proper pattern of behavior for instance if i've got a finger injury 
a good example. I've got a finger. I tweaked my finger about two weeks ago. Uh, I feel quite stressed at work at the moment. Uh, I was a bit cold, pulled on, tried a bit too hard. I just got a bit of inflammation. Um, following week, I carried on climbing and the inflammation cycle started going up and down and I'm supposed to be going away soon. I could carry on climbing and I could have carried on. I wanted to finish a climb uh, over the coming week and the last week as well. But you need to have that thing where you go, okay, I'm willing to do this, but I'm accepting that I'm going to compromise my trip and saying that to your partner. Like for me saying that to Maddie and saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to carry on climbing, but I might compromise some of our holiday. Mm. You're accepting that risk. Um, but if you know the best course of action is I need to stop climbing and stop that inflammation uh, pattern, then that's what you do. When I'm telling that to another athlete that I work with, you've got to say exactly the same thing is, okay, you got this finger niggle. You're not going to lose much strength in the next week or two if you address this now. I don't think you should do anything whatsoever or I think you should really cut back and just focus on these points. If you don't do that, it's absolutely fine. I know you want to go out on the weekend, but you're accepting the risk. Is that okay? Um, and then if they want rehab, you give them specific rehab to do that or you give them, get them in touch with an expert to help with it if it is a bad injury. Um, the worst thing we can do is pussyfoot around the situation sort of say that oh it could be all right um let's just see and if they do carry on just doing stuff then you go cool um yeah that is why your injury is still there Mm. okay you know that don't you because it's not my responsibility if i've told if i've given them the best information at hand it's their responsibility and in my eyes that's black and white the gray area in our language is where things go wrong and i think there's a misinterpretation about what should be done yeah, it's that communication element that's so important when it comes down to that injury incident and how you have that dialogue between coach and athlete. And I suppose in some respects, if you're talking about an individual themselves who is just doing their own training, is it's the dialogue they have with themselves and how clear they are on that same thing. Because ultimately, ultimately it's about being really objective and talking about the kind of the risks of what you're going to do into your activity now and the rewards of how you're going to play this out and strategize around that injury. And I think that's the bit that really makes the difference with injury. And I would say from my experience of working with the elite is that when you look at the injury uh, incident, when it happens, is that it's much more productive in terms of recovering from the injury managing the rehab process and then getting into a strong position is putting a lot more focus actually on the human and the psychological aspect of the relationship between you as a coach and an athlete but just also the general situation because there's nothing worse than injury rumination think about the fucked up situation that's happened you're really pissed off and now what you can't do is put your time and your and mental resources into what are you actually going to do about the situation? How are you going to deal with it? How are you going to not be angry and resentful over the situation that's occurred? You can't control injuries. They, they do happen and they happen a lot if you do climbing for a long many years. And it's that's where the energy I think should be going. And that's where you see a better result. And I definitely look at anyone that I've worked with or even know within the elite level climbing scene who are really good at managing that. And they're so focused 
on the thing that they're going to do in response to the injury rather than just focusing on the injury itself. And they seem to do really well yeah. every single year there. But then we, we me, you know, me and you look at clients who really struggle and, and some pros also that's really struggle with the injury at the moment. And they get pretty bogged down with thinking about and talking about the injury itself. It's yeah. done. It's there. It exists. Kind of have to move on. Yeah. Take some action. A good a good um, tell, isn't it, is when someone's got a uh, an injury and they touch you all the time when they're talking to you. You say, um, oh, how are things going? If they say they've injured their A2, they've injured their finger, they'll they'll play with the finger as they're chatting to you mm. and they'll describe their you're asking them about their life and stuff and like well how how are you doing lately like what have you been up to and as soon as they ruminate or think about just general stuff because it's so ingrained in them they'll start playing with the injury and before even if you try and avoid the topic it comes up in conversation this is not technically people we coach but this could be anyone so yeah i think you're right if if the energy can go elsewhere, whether it is into productive training or another part of life, it tends to be quite healthy when it's just about the injury and the almost denial or possibilities or overthinking what it could, can, could, can't be, whatever. That's when the problems really occur. So I think you're right. Like in terms of the psychological, psychological element plays a huge role. Mm. A big question. Yeah. And this one is fully on on the topic of the day and one that we've talked about a fair bit at Lattice and has featured in the media quite a bit with things like Will doing Burden of Dreams and a number of other athletes over time also using replica training is what are your thoughts and feelings about the role of replicas in the elite element of of climbing at the moment and, and we can reference both olympic training and we can also talk about trying to climb the hardest boulders or routes outside because it's arguable that you can make some kind of form of replica for your your comp stuff as well yeah i think um if i'm honest i know like replicas have been tried out in terms of comp boulders um i don't think it's needed at all for a comp comp climber i think movement patterns yes so toby um, if you go on his youtube he's done a really good video of doing some paddles that very similar to those in a comp he's been in he didn't need to replicate the specific climbs of the comps i've actually set for him replicating those moves but it doesn't really matter if it replicates specific comps it matters about the whole type and why the movement pattern fell down and if it was a weakness so paddles for example so can you get better at paddles? It doesn't really matter if it's a replica because if there's a repeated problem, the setters aren't very good. So it needs to be a new problem. Um, in terms of outdoor climber, I think it's really good. I think it saves time on trips. It saves mental energy and skin. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, people can say what they want about, you know, losing the magic and, all that I know it's been talked about a lot. I've not actually been listening into the media at all about it, even now. <laughs> but have you deleted Instagram again? I've deleted Instagram again, yeah. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, if that's what you enjoy doing, and I don't think people realize that 
say like people like Aiden and Will, a lot of the, they could ma- have a massive work capacity. They've trained all winter. They've got really strong. But the reason why they can't try the problem very much is their skin is just breaking every time because the amount size of the holds they're using is tiny. And yeah, you could say that's part and parcel of it, but it's really annoying to try a session, have about three burns, then have three days rest. Because it's not like they can go and climb other stuff with tape on because it will just keep puncturing the fingers and make the splits even bigger because their skin's really dry. So it becomes really boring to be a climber at that level if you don't go in really well prepared. So in my eyes, that's the main thing about replicas. It saves, um, it means you get rid of a lot of, uh, you control the controllables and then the uncontrollable element of skin and you've done the best you can on that is less of a factor because you're ready for the climb. Mm. Um, Because at the end of the day, these guys, I know they're professional athletes. They are getting paid to do this. It's part of their job but they also want to have a good time and they want to be doing more things. They don't want to be sitting around being bored because they can't try something again. Um, so I would say that for me, replicas are very valid to save people having a shit time whilst they're out climbing. Uh, because if I said that the same to you, I've, I mean, Josh in the office, his skin is awful. And like, he doesn't get to try his problems very often. And it does look frustrating. So if he can train more and get stronger on wood, and then go outside and perform on grit all for it. It's not replica training, but I mean, he's doing that for a reason. So he can actually go outside and enjoy his climbing and do some of the problems he's always wanted to do. Um, so yeah, I think if it makes people enjoy themselves all for it. Mm. One of the things that I discovered or observed with Will with replica training, which I thought was really interesting once I started to notice it was that, so for him as a, a character and a personality is he loves trackable step by step step incremental improvements in a thing so if you give him deadlifting for example he can totally go down the whole of deadlifting because he just wants to constantly move up his pb and he finds that a really rewarding process and if you give him fingerboarding again he'll just constantly go after those little improvements in it if you give him stuff that's too variable and scattered and random he doesn't actually respond psychologically as well to that situation and what i observed with the replica stuff was that this thing just went straight into the core way that he functions psychologically in terms of the satisfaction and his curiosity element and his fulfillment in following that process and so in terms of working towards a very hard piece of climbing it's almost like the perfect tool and journey for him because he can go on the replica he can break it down move by move he can even unscrew the hold and move it up the wall or move it down or he can put a pulley on and take up a couple of kilos of weight and so it actually is an extra powerful tool for will in this case and maybe for others as well because it perfectly plays in to his performance psychology and i remember seeing that and going ah oh, i don't know why i didn't spot that a little earlier and why we haven't done way more of that in the past. But I think this will continue to be a very, very productive feature for him in particular. And it wouldn't surprise me if over time he became a real expert in this particular strategy towards climbing some of the world's hardest climbs. Yeah, when, he, when he's been in here, he's been having such a good time. Same thing with that hole. It's measurable, he's psyched. There's actually a reason to do it. Mm. I mean, these guys as well, 
they go around on different boards and they can pretty much do everything or there might be some weird moves but it's a bit like they're climbing all the time it's a bit demotivating just to be doing random stuff all the time they don't doesn't really mean anything in training but they are psyched to climb outside and it brings the same thing they feel like they're outside or they feel like they're on the climbs and it builds into that whole obsessive thing about being an elite athlete and then like for us working with top end athletes is like what can we offer them and what do we encourage encouraging that attention to detail in training that translates to outside is a huge part of it so if you can get like really in the depths of that in training and be psyched for it then that's fantastic because it it's such an easy transition to outside it's one thing that a lot of people struggle with in climbing is they train they go outside and they can't seem to perform and there's this huge transition phase but good example if you are a route climber you're training down the wall and you're about to go away on a trip and you want to try and red point or it comes up to the season you're about to red point if you approach one of the indoor lead climbs for three weeks or two weeks before you go into that transition and you obsess over all the moves and you obsess over the body positions you are instantly in the mindset to do the same thing outside and these guys are switching between training and performing all the time so they need to keep that mindset going and they enjoy it more. So it's all it comes down to, again, is the enjoyment. Other people less so, but like Will was absolutely buzzing in here the other day on um, Excalibur um, replica. And then Aiden went and joined him and it was like a really cool session session to watch. But they were just enjoying themselves as well. Like you've got to think they're doing this all the time, what they're going to have fun with. It's not the right for everyone. Yeah, the Detmo's definitely having fun. Yeah, exactly. So why question it beyond they're having a good time and they're progressing? Yeah. How did, how did uh, Aiden do on the Excalibur replica? I didn't actually watch. I was just giving them a bit of shit for not getting on with four by fours. Because <laughs> they, they get distracted. Yeah, they ended up coming and joining us for a power endurance session. And uh, I don't know. I can't remember what he did, actually, but he was just having a bit of a play. So, um, But they both came and joined us with a, for some power endurance session. Um, I don't need to be on a replica, so I'm forcing them to come and train with me on power endurance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's, it's good for the both of them. And I, I, I mean, I, I love seeing really good climbers down here training together, and you know, sharing their their strengths and weaknesses, and the different you know motivation for training their projects and everything. And it's it's just a cool environment to just hang out with, even yeah. if you're not climbing yourself. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's. It's always good as well. You realise how real people are in terms of, um, you know, I think I used to put a lot of elite climbers on a pedestal. You know, they're amazing at all things. They might perform all the time. I know a lot of climbers struggle with this is maybe they've climbed 9A and they go to a normal, a different crag and everyone expects them to be on site in this 8As and all that. And they have a bad time on it. I mean, not so much those guys, but um, you suddenly realise, oh, no, they've just put in a lot of effort into these things. And there will be some climbs they just can't do. Um, like they might be on four by four boulders, these uh, guys, and they're just not doing as well as maybe you think they would. They're not like unattainable levels. They are really impressive to watch, but, you know, they are human at the end of the day. Like, you know, Will, for example, he's not got the strongest um, shoulders and lats in really wide positions. He knows mm. that. I know that weightlifting he's not like ridiculously strong that he's not weak either Aiden exactly the same flat edge one arm hang it's not that impressive but watching them utilize their strengths 
and be okay playing with their weaknesses is great to see. And it makes everyone really motivated around them. Because mm. you can pretty much try and burn them off in some way possible. Usually to do with legs for me, but uh yeah, I think I think it's I think it's nice to see. And it also means that everyone, you know, they it pulls them down from a pedestal in everyone's minds, which makes everything far more motivating because you feel like, oh, maybe I could perform in that way in some way, my own little niche. Yeah, yeah, it's inspiring, isn't it? You kind of think, oh, it's not over yet. Yeah, yeah. It's still going. Yeah, he says that. And <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I say I feel like it's uh I need to regain some some <laughs> health and fitness personally. <laughs> it's definitely over for me. Yeah, I'm solidly into my forties. Yeah, no, I never said that. I wrote. Uh, I don't say I didn't write. I, I I released a podcast recently about training your forties and fifties and sixties with Eric, and it was all uphill. I've just contradicted myself. I know. And said it's over. No. Well, yeah, you got a direct competition with Gresh. He's just going uphill all the way. So you've got to be doing that. But maybe individually, it is over for me. Yeah, that's more of an individual factor. <laughs> it's not healthy aging. No, well, um, thanks for joining me. And <laughs> thanks for being in the office with me. <laughs> in this dark hole of a podcast studio. I don't mind doing it on days like this as well because I feel kind of like a little bit run down. So it means I'm way more blunt about everything I say. Yeah. And sometimes being blunt is the best thing. So, yeah, if, I, if to any of the audience, if I sounded particularly blunt about points um yeah i'm just uh i think it's a good good mentality sometimes to just get on with it and say what you think yeah and you always get blunt ollie on tuesdays and thursdays that's, I just, know. that's just how it is i'm tired <laughs> yeah well have a great great trip uh when you go away and hopefully you will come back fully refreshed not yeah. injured anymore and have ticked at least eight a bloody hell god forbid yeah, I'm psyched. It's going to happen? I should bloody hope so. <laughs> it's whether I get down from some of these mountains we've got planned. That's the uh, the question. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Boulder, comp bouldering all winter or training for comp bouldering, great for multi-pitching. So it genuinely is. It builds that robustness. So I'm psyched. See what happens. Cool. Well, thanks, Ollie. Cheers. <laughs>